You're listening to the Physio Matters podcast in association with exerciseprescriber.com and this is session 48. Welcome back to Physio Matters. I'm still Jack Chu. And November 2017, I think, will always stick in my mind as being one of the most hectic working months of my life. And certainly for Physio Matters as a generalized brand as well as the podcast, I think it's probably going to be one of the pivotal ones as well. We ran an event that you might have already heard of called The Big R's. I mentioned it the last show uh, to keep an eye out on social media. And many of you clearly did because it certainly made an impact far and wide. Six and a half million um, reach on, on Twitter, for example, alone under a hashtag that we had, hashtag the big R's. And, um, and, and also the, the various different things that came of it that, that are still going on. And it, it was the start of a journey that we're hoping to embark on to promote professional progress and postulate a sense of reform around the concepts of reasoning and responsibility. So check that out if you haven't already, including the Facebook Live video that I did soon after, I think it was a few days after, uh, responding to some of the questions that have been raised uh, and some of the assumptions that have been made about the event. So check that out on our Facebook page if you haven't already. Um, or especially if you've heard about the event and want to know more about it, then that seemed to clarify a few bits. We've certainly had less abuse since I put that out, which is always a nice novelty. It stops me being tied up in that sort of nonsense. And amongst other things, it proved to us as well that we, uh, with a little help from our friends, especially those over at Connect Health, we can throw an event and we can throw a party. And so from that, it made us realize that the ever talked about Physio Matters tour and potentially the Physio Matters conference is likely to come into effect next year, 2018. We've already got dates um, booked for live events over in the Netherlands, in Portugal, uh, various times in 2018. We've got a couple of venues that we're eyeing up in the UK. The plan is 12 podcasts and six events next year. Now, if you want us to be uh, in your vicinity, if you have a venue in mind, particularly if you're in a university town, we want to try and get audiences that are a mix of students and their local therapists. We want to try and bridge gaps between communities and have inclusive events in which we can talk about these issues openly and fairly and give platform to some of the brightest minds in the world and the country and in the continent and all sorts of different places that we're hoping to take these messages. So get in touch with us if you feel that you can help us to bring that to life and you want us to come to you. So let us know. Session 48 makes it four times 12, makes it four years in Physio Matters, which is absolutely bizarre to me. I completely pinch myself that anyone tunes into these things, never mind the tens of thousands of you that do. And one of the things we've learned over the years of, of, of Choose Health, which has been best part of five years, and then Physio Matters best part of four years, is we've had two things. We've had experience working with various companies and products from said companies that have often either dazzled us or let us down, never anything in between. And, um, and also we've had companies come on and we've um, worked with on the podcast and turned down on the podcast uh, for various reasons. And interestingly, we're doing this episode, which is sponsored by exerciseprescriber.com, who are a unique company that's interesting in both of those sorts of terms. So they are a company in which we've encountered lots of different exercise prescription software over the years of Choose Health and always found it wanting and never really stuck around. I think that the longest we've really dabbled with 
any one has been sort of six months uh, and always found it sort of lacking and the other thing is that when people have come on to sort of we're interested we love what you do uh, how can we support you how can we sponsor what you're doing in any which way uh, usually we've either found their product wanting and therefore not been keen to endorse it or we, more often than not there's been people that have tried to influence our content or sort of thwarted our creative drive or sort of said oh we like about 70% of what you guys do and therefore can you mitigate the 30 that we don't sort of trying to influence us in that way in terms of ethos in terms of messaging etc and so exerciseprescriber.com have come on and shown basically given us free reign over a product including some beta versions of, of, of some of their other new products one of the biggest things they did was can you can you put our uh, can you put our product and um, practice under as much scrutiny as you put everything else which of course we jumped at because that's us and having done so we've we've picked and scratched away at it and the way in which that they're responding to um sort of critiques etc and, and the way that they are open to our opinions on all things uh, all, all of those matters is, is impressive to say the least and so we're delighted to work with exerciseprescriber.com um, who one of the biggest things as well if you, if you get a chance to you can get a two month free trial on their website and it only takes I think you spend a couple of hours on that and you can really the interface is brilliant that's the thing I've always found frustrating with other other products. Um, well, two things really. One of them is just the interface is a bit clunky, and when you you spend like an afternoon's worth of time getting it right, and then you can just about operate it, and, and you're always bodging. Uh, whereas with this, literally a couple of hours, and you are literally set up. They've got these things called extra sizes where you can put copy and paste YouTube clips and stuff that are your favourite bits and pieces, and they recognise that this goes beyond just um, you know a, a stick man doing a straight leg raise. This is the sort of thing where you you might want to lift patient information in, in, in material that sort of directs them towards an ethos or a concept or a principle rather than just a specific exercise, which you'll see maps onto this podcast episode perfectly. The second thing is, is that anyone that's sort of interacted with technology or considered trying to integrate technology will know the huge difference between if you were to get uh, British products made using British designers and, and any British techies, then essentially the, the much higher front-end cost than if you were to then send that out into the world market uh, which is uh, becomes a problem when you need to then talk to designers and creative people about say when we've looked into doing apps or we've tried to integrate software into our work before um, and essentially in this circumstance exercise prescriber recognized that that, that increased front end cost means that they can streamline the interface between businesses and, and clients um, and patients as well uh, with how they're working with the software and so we, when we pick up the phone and we need to, then we will be speaking to the people that created it rather than a marketing expert that's then just trying to pass off the fact that they pretend that they know the inner workings of the code of the product. <laughs> and that's just not true because essentially it got outsourced for about 13 pence an hour. Um, so that fair play to them for, for sticking the neck out and recognizing that because I think it's, it's something that they should be rewarded for by the market if everyone knew about it and so instead of what we've had to do with time zone problems speaking to Canadian companies um, or language barrier problems we've had trying to speak to the original designers that were uh, contractors uh, then that that's something we've not found which is really cool and, and, and really impressive and in this market especially in technology it's very very rare so fair play to them for doing so and we appreciate it so two month free trial on their website if you head to exerciseprescriber.com and get in touch with us if you run a service or you have um, run a cluster of practices and you want to see uh, hear about how we're integrating with uh, our, our work and education work with 
the um, exerciseprescriber.com software and then we can see what can be done to expose you to the product because we know you'll like it. Today's podcast is with Ben Cormack who is a big thinker in the field of exercise as medicine and the way in which we might advocate exercise prescription and movement therapies in general and uh, as you'll hear from this conversation someone who is very very generous with his thoughts and time and shares a lot of resources at Core Kinetic, Core-Kinetic I think it is on Twitter and you'll find him noisy across Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, his own website has embedded blogs and pieces to camera, uh, just someone that, that shares so much material and we massively appreciate him doing so. So it's been a long awaited, I'm glad to get him on the podcast and I hope you enjoy it, I'll see you at the other side. So today I am delighted to be here with Ben Cormack who is one of the names that's cropped up on our to-do list for, I would say, years now, and we've just not got round to it. And so it's been absolutely brilliant to, to get him on the show and, and talk all things exercise prescription, movement, and, and a lot of his life's work, I suppose. And um, I, I know that I'll butcher the introduction and probably get some bits wrong um, because I don't necessarily know a lot about this man's past. So I will invite him to introduce himself. Thanks for coming on Physio Matters, Ben. And would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about you and your story? Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me, Jack. It's an honour. I know you've had some really um, kind of very prestigious and amazing guests in the past. So it's nice that you've got little old me um, to come and have a, a bit of a, a, a chat. Um, yeah, so I suppose let me start with what I do currently. Um, I think I probably do three things. Currently, uh, probably the major part of what I do these days is, is teaching. So I run a company called Core Kinetic, and what Core Kinetic do is um, provide education to physios and osteos and chiros and sports therapists and anyone really who wants to learn more about movement and exercise um, for clinical practice and, and maybe beyond as well. So I like to think of, of what we provide as a clinical reasoning for movement and exercise and sometimes I think um, we can miss that we go after a bit of a fire and forget approach to exercise you know go away and do this sheet of exercises or or potentially just you know do this one exercise for the next 12 weeks or, or what have you so um, very fortunate that I get to go all around the world and teach and, and speak at conferences and stuff like that and that takes up probably the predominant amount of, of, of my work uh, my working week these days, something that I really enjoy, can be a bit tiring fitting in with family, etc. Um, I also work clinically, so I don't do as much as I used to or as much sometimes as I'd like to do. I still really enjoy um, clinical stuff, probably do eight to 10 hours a week of that. Um, I would say mostly I see um, more persistent pain cases than I do kind of um, first contact stuff. But then, you know, I still do do see people with uh you know with with you know common or garden injuries and stuff quite regularly and then the third thing that i do which i think kind of has really influenced my uh what i do over the years is i still do actually on thursday morning teach some uh, exercise and i even do a little bit of boxing coaching which is one of the things that uh i really enjoy doing and keeps me I think it's really, you know, when you teach exercise therapeutically, it's quite different to, to helping with exercise in a different environment. So I think it's really nice to, to have the blend of the two and maybe have uh, less pressures maybe on how you're dealing with it and the outcomes and you can have a bit more fun and, and be a bit freer, etc. So, 
my background, my clinical background was uh, uh, sports therapy. Um, I've also uh, got a, a PT qualification from back in the 90s when it was actually quite difficult to get one. Um, over the years, I've done, you know, lots and lots of uh, kind of exercise based CPD, things like S&C stuff, although I wouldn't say I'm any expert in S&C, but, you know, I've touched on, on lots of that kind of stuff over the years. Um, also, you know, done lots of kind of postgrad stuff in, in, in biomechanics. And, and that would be kind of my one of the largest things that I dealt with in the first part of, of my career, say, was very kind of biomechanical learning lots about, you know, this bone does that and that bone does this and, you know, getting all the kinematics right and all those other things. And then probably um, later on, a little bit more getting into the whole kind of pain science thing, which has always really fascinated me. A couple of things that I didn't really learn a lot about at um, undergrad uh, was really very much about exercise or very much about pain. And I'm sure I'm not the only one um, who, who, who feels like that. So, you know, a lot of the way that I work now probably um, relates to uh, kind of a lot of the stuff that I've done over the years um, in terms of exercise and, and, and pain science stuff. Although um, I think it's really important still to keep your kind of clinical, you know, that the, the, the traditional clinical aspect going as well. And I've made a real effort over the last couple of years to make sure that I keep my um, that if you're going to go down that pain science road, I think sometimes you need to make sure that you've got your got you've got the kind of clinical game as well to just to kind of balance the two out. So, um, yeah, so a lot, I've had a, a load of great mentors over the years. So both uh, clinically, academically, um, in terms of exercise wise. And I think probably a lot of what I do today is, is influenced by by some of those guys. Um, I've worked in purely clinical environments. So I've worked in uh, clinical environments within gyms in terms of, you know, like treatment rooms attached to gyms and stuff like that. I've worked within um, sport. And I think originally when I when I went into sports therapy, that's kind of where I wanted to go. I wanted to kind of go into the world of sports, etc. And I think I probably realised um, that maybe that wasn't my calling <laughs> in life. Right. So I kind of... Um, I kind of moved on from there. So, look, I mean, you know, I, I, I you know, I'm not sure that uh, it's particularly illustrious, but it's kind of led me to, I think it's pretty varied. And I yeah. think being varied has kind of led me to where I am today in terms of my ethos around using exercise and movement in, in, in clinical practice and enjoying teaching about it. I think one of the things that I've encountered recently, especially, but I think I agree and I wonder if your thoughts are in a similar place where to be confronted by patients sort of regulates some of your thoughts and stops you deviating something too abstractly. So you think you take a fairly deep dive into these things, particularly in terms of pain science and movement. You're certainly well read in that direction as the listeners are going to see as we delve into the conversation. But to be, it's easy to live in an, in a, a circumstance of abstraction and, and the data and the uh, concepts, whereas to be confronted by patients and their questions and their queries and their misconceptions is something that it's important to not get too distant from. Well, that's what I've certainly encountered as my roles become more varied. Is that one of the reasons as to why you've really wanted to keep your clinical work up? Well yeah, I think it helps us refine. I mean, I think it helps us uh, overcome bias. I think it helps us refine, as you say. Um, the best laid plans always get messed up by, <laughs> you know, by actually having to deal with people. <laughs> uh, 
So I, I think, yeah, absolutely. But more than anything, I think I really just really enjoy it. I just think that probably when you do something a lot and it's the only thing that you do, sometimes you can lose that aspect of passion and application. And when it's something that you don't do that much or do less than you used to do, it provides, uh, you know, you, you, you can kind of think about all the things that you talk about and you teach about. And then you can say, well, when I actually apply these, what? So when we teach, I think it's important not only to teach about um, what works, but also potentially what doesn't work and what the flaws and what the drawbacks are. And I think exercise is a great example of that. We could say, oh, exercise is brilliant. You know, and more and more what I like to talk about now is actually saying, well, what are the problems with using exercise? Because they're the real things that we need to discuss and overcome. Um, not not the successes, because, you know, they might happen for a million different reasons that we can't always know. But the, sometimes when we get failures, I think that helps you refine why it doesn't work, makes you kind of confront why does your bias, why is it not turned out the way it's turned out? Mm. And what can we do about that? What I think analysing what you haven't been successful at is much better than living in your successes. And I think applying stuff to people is really important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the things as well is if, if exercise is a potent modality that we all care deeply about and we want to instigate improved lifestyle variables such as that in people, then we need to recognise that when it falls short, we've got to evaluate that fairly tightly to make sure that you know if it's important and they're not taking their daily dose, then we need to try and work out where we're responsible for improving their uptake as we would with any other modality so one of the questions i wanted to open with which is as it's super broad because i'm really just interested in your general thoughts around this what makes movement important why are we why are we advocating it why are you so into instigating movement and exercise generally in patients that you see and then go on beyond that and teach therapists in that direction yeah i think there's a whole i mean i'm going to broaden it and say not just movement we could say activity we could say exercise you know there's a whole bundle of different ways that we can frame um that aspect and i think sometimes that's a big deal actually that sometimes we need to frame it in different ways for different people you know i think we have a big advocation for exercise which is fantastic but sometimes it's a little bit like telling someone who's obese to stop eating or someone who's depressed just to cheer up, you know? So exercise is great. It's fantastic. We know that smoking's bad, drinking's bad, um, but people still do it. So, you know, I think we have to go beyond um, and, and understand some of those reasons why, and then some of the reasons why not. So some of the reasons why it is important, and then some of the reasons why it can be a, a tricky thing um, to, to deal with sometimes. So, you know, it's uh, someone called, exercise they said if it was in a in a pill format it would be like a wonder drug um, but i always suggest potentially is it a bitter pill to swallow sometimes for Absolutely, some people yeah. um so i mean why do, look i mean if we look in the data um uh, and i think we have to be uh, data driven here positively and negatively we do see that exercise does seem to have um some pretty powerful effects on on the human body you know so there was the paper by Babatundi this year. I did a little um, uh, Twitter slide recently that has been shared a lot. Um, and it does seem to be one of the most uh, effective treatments that we have for musculoskeletal conditions. And, you know, we may suggest that when we look at uh, persistent uh, chronic uh, conditions, that potentially it's less effective. I think that's mostly because if you're looking for a singular magic golden bullet, 
Um, with any kind of intervention for persistent pain, then you're probably barking up the wrong tree. Um, and I think we see that with pain education. And I think we see that with exercise that, you know, they all make little effects. You know, they might, might, might make statistical effects when we study them and, and the two means compared against each other. But potentially when we look at things like effect sizes, et cetera, and minimal clinical important differences, you know, maybe we don't see the same kind of uh, magic going on. So we have to, again, we have to remain critical. But so why do I think exercise is fantastic? I think it seems to be one of the best treatments we have. Um, I think it's low cost. You know, I think it can be self-administered. I think it's low risk. And I think in the world of modern healthcare, low cost, low, low risk and being self-administered are probably three very, very powerful, potent reasons why we should see exercise as a really, really good intervention. You know, is it equal in terms of effect size and statistical significance to lots of other things? It's equal or probably better. Is it a magic bullet? No. But where the really fantastic things come in, I think, is cost, um, it is risk, and also the fact that people can go away and do it to themselves. And if you were to ask me, you know, why is exercise so powerful? It's because it's a treatment that people can actually do to themselves. And maybe that's where the issue comes in. That That's one of the most important parts is actually getting people to do it, not the fact that it's good. You know, sure. so again, if you were to study it, you might suggest that the external validity of a lot of exercise research is limited because in a controlled environment, the, the, uh, the, the data that we get back from it can be positive. But that is only kind of predicated on the fact that it actually gets done. So, you know, it's so the external validity of generalizing one scenario to another scenario really kind of sometimes falls down within exercise research. But generally, the overarching principle is it's better if it gets done and it's more likely to have an effect if it actually gets done. But they're my three kind of big things, low cost, low risk, self-administered. Um, if we think about outcomes and we see this more and more at the moment that we're seeing similar outcomes to lots of surgeries, um, recent looking at shoulders and knees and backs and all these other things is that actually if we think about the cost and the risk and all these other factors of two things that have equal results or we don't see a, a difference between the two i'm always going to go for the one that has less risk costs less and uh, can be self-administered self i think it's really important for health you know going beyond any kind of specific therapeutic effect i think health is a huge big part of the human condition um, and general health has a huge effect on musculoskeletal pain and lots of other functionings of the human body um, and the mind as well. So it's not it goes beyond, again, just MSK pain. I think it goes actually into the systemic effect of human beings. And the more we understand about persistent pain and, you know, pain modulation and all these other factors that pain science teaches us about, then we start to understand that the organism, the human being, the, the, the system as a whole, benefits hugely from being healthier and and that's a huge great benefit i think um i think exercise can be used analgesically which is another powerful thing that we can go after and again there's there's data to suggest that the more active you are the better your kind of endogenous pain modulation systems are which is uh which is a pretty cool thing um we know that lots and lots of people's complaints and goals are related to movement there was a there was a paper that came out on goal setting back in 2015, um, and I think they found somewhere between 50 and 60 percent of people's goals that they present 
um, to a therapist with were related to a movement-based goal. So again, then exercise and movement and activity are right up there and front and center again um, with why with why exercise is pretty powerful. But I don't think exercise being a powerful and being useful is ever in doubt. You know, I don't think we ever discuss that. I don't think there's a point in discussing it sometimes. I think actually it's how do we get people to 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 actually understand that or, or actually do it. You know, that's the real powerful talk. Because, again, if you said to most people, is it healthy to exercise? They'd say, of course. It's a no yeah, 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 absolutely. But, yeah, they understand that. So, so they know it already, but in the same way that they know smoking bad is bad and drinking is bad for the health. But people do it anyway. You know, so we have these overarching messages. And I think sometimes we need to refine that and, you know, look at the, the, the research and the means and the data and then say, how can I apply it to this person standing in front of me? And I think that's really the next step in reaching people and reaching the person in front of us is to actually uh, kind of help them understand and find things that they um, they they kind of relate to and they feel good about doing. And uh, and sometimes you're not going to win that battle. We know that it's it maybe utopian thinking. But certainly that's, I think, the next battle. And I think that's the battle of evidence-based practice is to say, well, this is what research says, but how can I take this probability and actually apply it to this person? And I think that's very, very true of exercise in itself. One of the things that um, pay, I mean, pretty much every time patient comes through, they, they are looking to not necessarily leave that day, but certainly they're coming to you for a package of care that would involve them being in less pain and discomfort. Uh, when they present with a musculoskeletal condition or problem. And in doing so, do you find there, there is um, certainly historically, and it lasts even to now, this concept in which people need to be, you know, they, they would either assume that they want to be pain-free before they then re-engage with exercise or that the pain needs to be better regulated for them than before they exercise, almost like there's a precursive, um, decrease in their symptoms before they then re-engage with a process of movement and exercise. Do you, do you encounter that still? And, and is that one of the pervasive things that we've still got to fight fairly hard? Well, I think that, that again, that's what we don't talk enough about, that there is a psychology to exercise and doing things. So it's not the actual doing of it that's the problem. You know, sometimes it's the problem, it's the planning, it's the equipment, it's this, it's that and the other. But sometimes it's people's belief structures and it's their uh, expected prediction of what's going to happen. And as we know, uh, you know, expected outcome is a massive driver of actual outcome. So if you believe that this exercise is going to make you worse or cause you more pain, you are not likely to engage with that treatment. So the treatment becomes academic. It becomes something, you know, we could talk about reps and we can talk about sets and we can talk about periodization and loads and all these other things. But if that person doesn't believe that that treatment relates to them or is relevant to them or is going to cause them a negative outcome, that will change the way that they engage with the process. And that's massively a thing that we need to, you know, again, there was a, 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 a paper, I think it was 2014, I forget the author, um, and they were talking about um, some of the number one, some of the reasons behind why people don't adhere to exercise. And the number one reason was simply they thought make the pain worse. There was a, a subjective piece of research. Uh, it's kind of a qualitative piece of research this year 
on exercise for rotator cuff pain. Um, and again, one of the things in there was they had some little quotes from patients talking about their experiences of exercise for rotator cuff pain. And one of the aspects in there simply was it hurt. So I thought I'd better stop. So is pain a big driver of people or, 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 the, or the fear of pain, not even pain itself, is the fear of pain simply a driver for people not exercising? You would have to say absolutely yes. Do I see that? Absolutely yes. So is it the education and the knowledge that you impart on a patient that becomes the most important thing sometimes, not actually the exercise itself? They could do 11 different exercises in 11 different ways. Who knows? Who cares? The real kicker is actually being able to get that person to engage and believe and to have a positive expectation of an outcome. And that might be that exercise doesn't take immediate effect. Sometimes it is an analgesic. Sometimes it is going to hurt. Sometimes you are going to make it worse. But in the long run, you may be more likely to see a favourable outcome. So the exercise itself, again, is academic and redundant to some degree. It's that information, it's that education. Timelines are a huge big deal for people. You know, they come in, they expect things to be pain-free within a couple of them. Sometimes people come in to see you because pain has lasted a little bit longer than they expected. So, oh, I've had this a little bit longer than I think is normal. So I wanted to come in and see someone about it. And that's, you know, again, that points to the psychology of pain. But again, if you come in and you expect an exercise to have an immediate effect, then possibly that's not going to be the case. So are you then not going to engage with the process of, or of that exercise that may have an effect over an extended period of time? So education about timelines, education about all these other factors that are to do with outcome and process probably are more important than the sets and the reps and the loads and all these other things. That stuff can be quite variable. Yeah, or, you can, or you've got to pull the brakes on that and bring that in when they've actually engaged with understanding how this is relevant to them. I think one of the things that I... Um, yeah, education. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One, one of the things that I encountered when I was first learning it and then going on to teach it with motivational interviewing was that it was very different when we were trying to instigate change behaviours in the direction of musculoskeletal practice compared to some of the other things that we were... Um, seeing the data for such as smoking such as sort of sexual health behaviors and things like that it was different in a sense because we there was this underlying need to find it find a way to, to help someone who already had kind of come to terms with the fact that they wanted to do more and engage more with exercise and movement but it hurt and therefore trying to uncouple this notion that it was therefore dangerous to move and unsafe to do so that the pain is truly representative of something that is going to do you some mischief and whilst of course there are cases in which it would be don't jump around and hop on a fracture etc or some fractures then it's it, that that uncoupling is something that goes it's got to be a precursive thing to like you say the reps and sets and the the specifics that have become well are increasingly trendy in physiotherapy so I'm, I'm i'm well with you on that do you see any other issues in the way in which we approach advocacy of exercise and movement generally what are the key gripes that you have that you see and encounter well, I, I think that, you know, that's that you've hit a bit of a nail on the head for me and things that I talk about. And I've had a few arguments on social media with people and stuff over the years. Um, but, yeah, so so one of the key aspects, I think, is that we put exercise front and centre, the type of exercise, the prescription, you know, these kind of things. And I think, there's, as you suggest, there is 
there is a uh, trend towards thinking that better exercise prescription will give us a better outcome. Now, I'm not suggesting that it won't. We don't, I don't think we have that data, that people who are better at exercise prescription, however you choose to quantify that, get better outcomes. I don't see it as something that's outlandish. And I agree that a, a working knowledge of exercise beyond what probably 99% of us learn undergraduate is, um, is a really, really powerful thing. But I think that we definitely need to be more person-centred than we need to be exercise-centred. And I think we become very tribal when it comes to exercise. You know, I'm a movement guy. I wear my hair in a bun and do lots of funky movements. Or I'm a strength guy. I lift and load and all these other kind of things. And if we look at uh, patients, I, my personal belief is that patients need to use their bodies regularly. They need to use their strength. They need to use their range of movement. They need to use their rate of force development. They need to use variability and all these other factors. I don't know if people actually need more, you know, whereas this pursuit of more and more, you need to be stronger, you need to load more, you need to do this, you need to do that. I don't, I don't know if I believe that. I believe that people in, inherently have a lot of uh, ability that they don't use, you know, and actually they probably need to start using um, their bodies a bit more in some different ways. And um, and I think that we should take a little bit more of an all-encompassing view, a person-centered view, rather than an exercise view, you know. So let's say, let's put our, let's put what we believe to one side and let's look at this person, let's look at what they enjoy, let's look at um, maybe what they don't do and maybe what they could do a bit more of and uh, and just, you know, get across to people that, just using their bodies um, in different ways is probably going to be really, really beneficial for them. But I don't want to say, well, you're not strong enough. You need to load more. You need to do this. You know, do I need to get people working at 100% max or one rep maxes and all those other kind of things? A lot of people probably don't even use five rep maxes, you know, in their day-to-day -day lives. Exactly. So, you know, I think there's kind of, it has to be individually relative. So my, I think that we need to, especially as we start to understand adherence aspects, as we start to understand learning about exercise and pain probably isn't the same as exercise and performance, that we need to say, let's, let's look at people, let's understand a bit more about the psychology, let's understand a little bit more about some of the models that we have that look at people rather than exercise and learn a bit more about those and start to implement a little bit more about those. And I think this comes back to the clinician as well. Do you need to be an SNC guru? No. Do you need to be a movement guru? No. Do you need to be a psychology guru or motivational interviewing guru? Probably not. But do you need to know a little bit more about these things? Probably yes. Absolutely, and yeah. Yeah, making sure it's varied, yeah. That makes sense. It does, yeah. I have some sympathy in the direction of those that, that want to that, that see the cap current capacity of someone, test it, and then want to try to increase that uh, that comfort zone, or people obviously have, have given it various different things, envelope of function being one that's been used specifically and generally, someone's capacity and tolerance um, are words that we, we use that language quite a lot. I think there is something to be said about that, but I, th I do agree with what you're saying where it's it's too easy for us to therefore assume that of people. When they come in of 
and this this they're struggling with something or they're having pain with certain movements or activities or they've developed a pathology it's almost the the latest thing is to infer a lack of robustness and tolerance in a very meaning that in a specific way rather than just in a functional capacity sense so I, I wonder if you've encountered the same sorts of concerns it certainly sounds like you have yeah well look i mean i don't disagree with the idea of tolerance and capacity and all these other things you know i think that to just believe that, uh, uh, you know, pain in, uh, and pathology is just a lack of capacity or tolerance probably um, simplifies a lot of what we know about pain or it kind of, uh, you know, it doesn't maybe uh, correlate with that. So, look, is it all a massive continuum or spectrum? You know, for some people, it's going to be completely related to capacity or tolerance or tissue or whatever and then other people it's going to be very little to do with that again is it just a clinical reasoning question that you have to determine for this person what is the most likely scenario for it to be and sometimes i think we, our opinions are clouded by who we see so if i am uh, you know if i'm in sport I am going to see a specific type of injury that probably clouds my reasoning process a little to that being the most likely scenario. If we're thinking about a Bayesian approach where we're looking at runners or whatever that maybe do uh, relate to less capacity, um, then I think that that's probably going to bias my thinking. And I think the same is true within the world of chronic pain that, you know, if I don't, if I see a lot of people where it might not be to do with capacity it might, or it might be to do with capacity and tolerance multifactorially across a whole bundle of different um, scenarios um, or, or changes within basic tolerance levels and things like that, um, then I think that's also going to cloud my vision and my thinking. And again, what we have to do is, is kind of, again, think about the N equals one and, and what is this person in front of me? And based on um, what, how they present, what, what is the most likely scenario to think of? But I think if we think about chronic pain, then, you know, if everything's likely to be hurt doesn't equal harm and there is no pathology and I see a backlash against pain is in the brain and all these other things. Well, if that's the only way you ever think, then that's probably fairly limited thinking. Mm. Whereas exactly the same way at the other end, if it's all about tissue tolerance, then, you know, we're probably, again, not applying a really good level of critical thinking. And for a lot of people that you will see in day to day practice, they probably are somewhere in the middle. Um, but can we ever determine what is the tolerance? You know, it, there's so many stressors that act on the human being and affect things like our allostatic load and our homeostasis that, you know, it's very, very hard to determine one singular factor. So, you know, if there's one lesson I think we learn from looking and understanding more about pain is it's likely to be a, a multifactorial situation in many cases. So, you know, I, I certainly think that any any situation where we instantly just have a belief that pain or pathology is caused by X issue it is, is probably not always uh, going to be the case. And I, I think that's like a basic, a basic reasoning model for, from my perspective. Mm, no, I think that's, that's uh, certainly, certainly makes sense. And I think it's one of the things that we've got to just bear in mind is just making sure that however tempting it is, and, and especially as the, as the data lures us away from uh, certain things and towards others, then we've got to make sure we don't make the same mistakes again and, and, and sort of round it you know, too, too linear with not just the specifics of what we do, but also the specifics around the mechanisms of why we think we're influencing people. Which brings me to why, what, how do you think we should assess human movement and therefore assess 
patients in general because there is a fair spectrum or a plethora of different ways in which that's ha- that's happened over the years. Uh, some people putting their names to it and uh, lots of uh, fads and trends that, that occur. Do you advocate a specific Corkinetic Ben Cormac approach to, to assessment? Uh, you're not about to start peddling a screen, I assume, uh, from, from recognizing your work over the years. I, I don't see that coming, but please correct me if I'm wrong. You want to well, keep it a bit broader funny, than that. Funny you mention it, Jack. I've just got this new... No, I haven't really. Um, so, look, I, I am... You know, I, I think when I first started... Um, out in, in this game uh, I sounded a bit cockney there my cockney vernacular sorry I can't give you any grief for southern voice on here Jack um, <laughs> yeah, I know. so I, I am not convinced that I am particularly uh, bothered about um, assessing human movement you know I, I just don't know if it's something that's necessary um, I'm not sure we should I think the best way to view movement and exercise is a tool to use rather than something to be fixed. You know, I think movement in itself is so variable. And, and as I say, you know, I kind of, that whole kind of pathokinesiology, this is moving in the wrong way, you know, in my elbows, and that causes my ankle pain, or, you know, your earlobe is, is wiggling a bit on the funny side, and that's causing your lower back pain and stuff like that. Um, that was very much where I came from. You know, that was the predominant model of thinking and, and kind of something that definitely I've been through. And sometimes you need to go through it to actually understand it and see the flaws in it. It's quite easy from the outside to kind of just say, well, that doesn't work. But actually understanding why it might not work is, is also a pretty powerful thing. So should we assess human movement? Um, so from my perspective, we definitely need to move away from the idea that movement needs to be assessed or fixed. Um, you know, movement is so, so variable. One of my pet, you know, geeky pet habits is, is finding research papers that have um, nice little graphs where they take multiple uh, trials of the same movement and then look at the, the kind of variability between these different repetitions. And it goes back to the work of kind of Bernstein and repetition without repetition and all that kind of stuff. And so when we actually look at movement and look at force production and look at all these other things, kinematics and kinetics and what have you, we actually see that, you know, it's probably uh, one of the most variable things that we do. And if we look at human beings as a biological organism that adapt and that do other various beautiful and wonderful things, we actually see that variance is one of the things that typifies biology, that there isn't this, you know, physics is about laws, isn't it, that we have you know, Newton's three laws, action and reaction, you know, ground reaction forces and all these other things. Um, And I've never managed to overcome gravity yet. I've never managed to cheat that law. Um, I've been drunk a few times and I might have been close. (laughs) But actually, um, you know, biology is different to physics and human beings are biological. And we have to understand that that's variation in the way that we move, variation in the way that our bones, you know, orient with each other, variation in how we look and how we talk and all these other things that we need to embrace biological variation. Now, there's probably a whole bundle of research out there that kind of points towards, well, there is a whole bundle. I'm not not even probably. There is a bundle of research that looks at variability and looks at the idea of decreases or increases in variability beyond the kind of a golden time as being, as being a problem. You know, we see it with lower back pain. It's probably one of the most um, informative kinematic research stuff we have in lower back pain that 
people do seem to, for whatever internal mechanism, whether that's increases in stiffness or, or you know, whatever, internal moments, etc., um, we do see that people lose that natural variation. And we've looked at patellofemoral pain and we've looked at shoulder pain with the work of Magdalene and all these other things. And we see that human beings, when they're, um, when they're in kind of persistent pain states or they have pain, we see changes in variability. Um, so I think the biggest lesson that we can take from movement variability, and I at one point probably thought it was a bit more of a panchea than it actually is. But if there's one lesson we can take, is that pathokinesiology models probably makes them fairly redundant just simply because, you know, how do we take one, you know, one measure or one definition or one um, aspect and just say, well, this is pathological. That would be exceptionally difficult to do when we have all this massive amount of variation going on. If we think about clinically as well, how the hell are you meant to measure that? Have you ever been sucked into the FMS, FMA, SFMA style of, of sort of uh, quanti trying to quantify movement and, and d determine whether it is functional or dysfunctional? I've been sucked into looking and at movement, certainly, and trying to find, you know, kind of things that I felt were one of my least favourite words, dysfunctional. I've never actually specifically got sucked into the FMS or the SFMA. Because um, you, you do speak to some people that are like reformed devotees you know you're not you're not in that you're not in that group then you you, you don't want to talk about your uh, your story away from it how you got I've off never it. been to a meeting Jack I, <laughs> right, okay. I stand up and say you know um, my name's Ben um, I'm a reformed FMSer but then again I don't want to be down on anything there are lots and lots of models that go in the same direction now my personal belief is that when people come to see you part of what they want is an answer they want you to be able to turn around and say, this is your problem. This is the solution. And I think a lot of models in lieu of being able to find consistent pathologies and all these other things that we know that our clinical testing is very poor at, that sometimes we give people an answer that's different. So that might be about their posture. It might be about their movement. But what does it give people? It gives people an answer. People want an answer. They're pushing for an answer. And it gives you an ability to give one. You've changed the narrative. You've said, this is the problem. I found the problem. And actually trying to fix movement probably in a lot of cases is very helpful, just not for the reasons that we believe it is. So if I ask you to do some exercises or some movements, it probably helps because you're exercising or moving. It doesn't maybe need to be the specific one that is chosen by my screen or my guru. It probably needs to be some aspect of movement. Now, Personally, I would believe that if I use exercise and movement, I understand movement is variable. The real two things that I get from that is that models that tell us we have to conform to some kind of movement ideal are a load of old crap. And then secondly, that if I am going to move and exercise with people, do I want to do that with some kind of variability in terms of could I use more than one exercise? Could I make an exercise more variable? And three, probably. Do I want to over instruct people? I think that's one of the other big flaws that we have yeah. is that we try and give people too many instructions because we want to load the specific tissue or get this or get that. And actually, you just end up maybe in some cases kind of causing uh, more of a problem than you're solving in, in some aspects. Because if you th look at most people with lower back pain, I don't know if many people with lower back pain coming to me looking like they're the fl most flowing, freest 
people, you know? Do they need more movement instructions? Do they need more movement rules? Or do they just need to someone to say, do you know what, mate? You just need to move a little bit more. You just need to feel freer. You need to feel happier. And you need to believe that this is going to help you. So broad external cueing. I think that that's totally, totally fair. Well, I, I don't necessarily know whether we, we disagree on this. So let me just sort of spout some thoughts <laughs> and see what you think. But I, have a, I agree with what you're saying. But I also have, a, personally, I have an upper and lower limit to what you're saying as well. And I just wonder what your thoughts are. Firstly, easier to define the lower. So I'll go for the higher. The upper limit of it being that there is like a, a ste- like a something... It's hard to quantify, but there's an, what is aesthetically pleasing movement at the very top of it. When someone is at the top of their game in any sort of circumstance, be that dance, gymnastics, or even team games, it's uh, boxing, combat sports. There's, 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 a, there's something that you could, you could pick, pick someone up that doesn't know anything about it and they would say they move well. And there's this, just something that's really hard for us to understand, but there is some form of something that's hard to objectify but it is a inherently good quality functional optimal movement for for whatever we however we want to call it that's my upper limit then my lower limit is more to do with the way in which we need to make sure we keep an eye on people's movements so that we spot the overt clues where someone is moving in such a way that is inferring a huge reluctance to weight bear on one side, for example, that, that seems to be uh, relevant. Uh, certain neurological patterns that form when someone's developed a condition that we, we would hate to miss. So if we were to take his eye off the game too much and, and not be as bothered about how people move because of human variation to it, might we miss something that is indicating um, a reluctance to do that? Especially, I mean, it's obvious, more obvious within sort of children, but certainly in adults as well. Um, we don't want to make sure we're missing anything overt on that underside. So I've, I've, I've sort of, I agree with everything you're saying, but I have these these upper and lower limits to it uh, where I'm looking for fluency and I'm certainly uh, making sure that I don't miss a fe- fe- you know a, a gate in which someone's shuffling uh, that that would that would make sure that I I uh, escalated things quicker because uh, that might be my only clue. So your thoughts on your thoughts on those sort of boundaries that i'm defining well then it has to it comes back down to clinical reasoning and continuums again doesn't it i suppose that um yes i mean i wouldn't ever suggest that these things i let's not you know i'm not a binary guy um you know i don't want to make yes or no statements about very much so you know but how, i suppose the question is how broad is that so if you look at a lot of these movement assessment processes actually those upper and lower boundaries come a lot closer into the middle right yeah. Whereas, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, I think good quality sure. reasoning. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, so no, I think, I do, again, yeah. you know, you've made, you've made a good point. Let's see it on a continuum. And let's say that there are these upper boundaries and there are these lower boundaries completely. Uh, how much does moving like Roger, Roger Federer um, kind of relate to the average person in front of me? You know, so, I mean, he's beautiful, right? You know, if you, I could watch Roger do I could watch Roger doing the housework you know I'm sure he'd do it in, in a beautiful way Top duster, it? yeah especially with a oh. duster you can imagine he's a wizard with the duster it's just flowing could you imagine <laughs> in awe of Roger dusting his house you know maybe they need to when he retires they can put some kind of webcam on him and people <laughs> can pay some kind of subscription okay. uh, as you say are there other indicators of things um, that, that may be pathological uh, 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 down down at another end as well. So, again, it, does it come back down to uh, education? Does it come back down to clinical reasoning? Does it come back down to 
um, containing your biases. So, no, I totally agree with you that, that we have these upper and lower limits. I think the thing is, is that when we actually look at this kind of middle ground or, or the predominant part of clinical practice is actually what we see is that sometimes some of these models take those upper and lower limits and stick them somewhere near the middle. Yeah, and yeah. It's looking for the, I always say it's, it's, it's that you're looking for overt, if you want to use the word flow, which cre creeps into our lingo far more than I'd like, but if you want to use that, then you're looking for overt flaws. There is certain, there are certain dimensions in which we, we would be particularly bothered if someone could extend their knee as much as they could flex their knee. It would be, it would be a bit of a bizarre one and it would indicate pathology. We'll consider that a move movement flow of a sort. Now, if you narrow those parameters and start to nitpick on the detail without ever having seen that this is new for that person, um, then, then yeah, you, you're getting carried away on a theme. But generally speaking, it does sound like we agree that we want to, we, we spend a lot of time in that middle ground between those two things. And we want to make sure that that area is broad and diverse rather than narrowing people and, and pinning it in uh, so that we feel that we can quantify it too, too narrowly. And I think that's part of sometimes the straw man argument is when you talk about movement is suddenly, you know, so how much, oh, so knee valgus doesn't matter. Well, what about ACL injuries? Um, you, do you see what I mean? And again, what you're doing is you're talking about the middle ground, but suddenly you're pushing it out to the to the absolute, one of the absolute ends of, you know, obviously landing on a single leg with a straight knee at high speed, twisting on it can cause you, um, some form of, could could cause you increases the risk of some aspect of ACL injury. We haven't taken into account biological tolerance or many of those different factors or the fact that millions of people land in exactly the same ways during the game of football and don't have an ACL injury. But again, it is an extreme example. And these are these are it's, it's ideal where it's good that we've kind of come to this. Where, where, what we're talking around here is context sensitivity, and that that is really important. So not just those variables that you've described, but being a 23-year-old female footballer who's also happens to be simultaneously distracted by a ball coming over the left shoulder. You know, these are all variables that might contribute to the likelihood of it. But that's where causation is an interesting thing to study in and itself. So, yeah, yeah. I think if we're going to talk about dysfunction and labelling things dysfunctional, I think what we need is some aspect of something to hang on to, to hold on to some data that tells us that this situation is likely to be some form of risk factor. You know, and I think a lot of these models um, of movement just don't have it. So if you don't have the data, it's very, very difficult to suggest that this slight variation, and that's probably what it is in your movement, is likely to, to, it, to, be, um, to be pathological. But I'm going to throw another scenario, though. What about if someone came in um, with really, really good movement and they were free and they're flowing and they're doing all these other things, but they have pain? So we always use this argument that, Oh, my God. But what about if or, or that? And I think there's the other end of the spectrum as well there, isn't there, that we can actually see Roger Federer come in and say, well, do you know what? My back is killing me. And you look at him and you can look at him dusting or doing whatever else he's doing. And he looks amazing. But he's still got back pain. Absolutely. So, you know, we also have to look at not just, you know, we always look at the, the kind of bottom end. I also think we have to look at that top end. And I've met lots of people 
that you know move fantastically that have pain and i thought right let's let's have a look at you then i'm sure i'm going to find something and this is probably what steered me away from a more biomechanical perspective is that you when you actually look at it objectively and put bias to one side you might see a whole bunch of people that actually move fantastically um but still have pain and that kind of really kicks that argument the whole movement argument in the nuts a little bit yeah you've got to walk yourself into the anomalies at least even though they're not a lot anomalies don't get me wrong but you that that's one of the things that right at the top of the show where we're talking about being confronted with actual humans that don't necessarily fit your lovely abstract models in theory um that's a, a classic example of that isn't it people do move well and still get injured some of the best you know roger roger federer very rare he's done pretty well with it which is one of the reasons why he's champion his movement styles are championed is because he's been relatively low on injury risk hasn't he but uh generally speaking i think you're absolutely right we see those people where that's where people feel obliged to shoehorn it in if your model is that there's pathokinesiology therefore someone comes in with immaculate form and posture and all the other variables that you're looking for then you start to nitpick in order to explain it and start to look at force variables between different muscle groups and the cross syndromes that merge from that um, start to start nitpicking over people's sling and then finally you blame the contralateral jaw for the other ankle. It, it, it's, it's easy to go down that. It's a slippery slope have if you, that's your model. Have you been spying on my sessions? Ah, uh, yeah, you see. I've, got, I've, been, I've had spies in camp on your, on your courses, yeah, yeah. You've got that webcam, the Roger Federal <laughs> webcam trained on me. <laughs> yeah, and, you, and your dusting is, uh, leaves a lot to be desired. I should say. Sorry, buddy. It's all I'm right. Now, one of the, we're, we're talking around it already, but I wanted to know what is your... What is your line for when a movement becomes dysfunctional, or are you suggesting that you that it isn't a line that exists for you because of the parameters we've already talked about? No, I'm not suggesting it doesn't exist. Um, I, I, I suggest that the majority of the clinical population that we see will um, not be at either end of that line. You know, I think they are, are rarer than they are more common. Um, so, as you say, are there scenarios where people come in with um, kind of, you know, antalgic gates or, or, or various other kind of signs that might be indicative of a neurological issue or, you know, or, or, or whatever. Um, and, and of course, this comes back to uh, where people lie on the educational spectrum, doesn't it? And that your clinical knowledge of being able to identify those. But I wouldn't call them movement flaws particularly. I'd call them indicators of something more serious. Does right. that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think when we're assessing movement, you know, that doesn't even, if you go on a movement assessment course, are they even going to discuss those factors? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's a great point as well, where some of the some of the things that are mentioned, it's like, yeah, of course, we wouldn't necessarily call it a movement flaw. It's that they can't engage their calf because they've ruptured their TA. It's like, is that is that a flaw of such? I mean, you'd be you'd be gutted and a mug to miss it. But is, is yeah. it a movement flaw? I agree because in that that language is usually couched in this notion of, of this is the right or wrong. Here's a textbook, or at the very least, here's a window of which people should move like for optimal performance and pain-free movement so now I'm, I'm, I'm with you there and it, it's something that I think we naturally visited that question uh, far sooner than I anticipated but it's all been it, it's all been building up to what is you know, you're one of my favorite thinkers in this direction anyway but particularly around this next question I've just been 
trying to fight myself for it. It could have been my opening question because it's the most important one, I think, and one that I want to really pick your brain on, which is when encouraging exercise and movement-based treatment where we're trying to engage someone in, this is where you are, this is where we want to get you to, this is where you're telling me you want to be able to be functionally in terms of activity, how specific do you feel we should be? Always absolutely 100% specific. Absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, we should always be specific. Because if you're just giving someone an exercise to do randomly because you feel that, that you know, for whatever reason, then that's pretty poor. Um, that's a pretty poor practice, in my opinion. So I think we should always be specific to some kind of reasoning process. So specificity you know, some people might think about specificity in terms of a biomotor quality, so strength or range, and that might be one aspect of specificity. Another aspect of specificity, um, you know, might also be that I want to affect a specific tissue. You know, I want to create mechanotransduction in a certain tissue or load a tendon or, or whatever. And I think that they're really um, kind of cool things to do, and I think they're important specifics to have. Um, but I think we should always be specifics, but maybe not to those traditional aspects. So, um, you know, I do a little section of this in the course talking about, cl again, clinical reasoning. So it might be that my exercise prescription is specific to having you improve your adherence to exercise. So what is in my exercise prescription that means that you are going to do more of this exercise? I don't know whether the specific exercise is important. But my thinking and my reasoning is guided towards specifically dealing with this thing within your treatment plan. So maybe there's a difference in the way that we think about specificity, right? That, you know, rather than thinking about specificity of the exercise, we're thinking about specificity of outcome. And again, I think that's a reasoning process rather than a here's a sheet of exercises. Here's a fire and forget. So that could be specificity in terms of, you know, it might be that people do have. You know, rather than talking about movement flaws, could we suggest that sometimes people have a maladaptive or adaptive or unhelpful or helpful uh, movement scenarios? So would I want to change the movement floor of a limp with an acute ankle sprain? Uh, probably not. It's adaptive. It's probably helpful at that scenario. Maybe I would like to affect that. And we know from kinematic data and kinetic data that, you know, a long time after ankle sprains or tendinopathy, we still see changes in the way people move and produce force, etc. Um, but, you know, it might be that at one point uh, I don't want to change it and another point that I do want to change it based on timeline, clinical presentation, etc. So it might be, again, it, I think it has to come back to how we view the word specific and if it's specific to an outcome or is specific to a tissue. So lower back pain, data probably tells us that we probably need, moving is important, right? So if we take a whole bundle of exercises and we compare them, we tend to see that no singular exercise seems to be the best for back pain, whether that's high load, low load, motor control, you know, whatever other variety you want to find. So actually here, the specificity of the exercise may be less important. It might be that adherence to moving more often and your belief structure behind moving is more important. And it might also be that the exercise plays into those factors. Do you enjoy it? Are you able to do it, etc.? But it might be potentially my clinical reasoning and my um, specificity is driven towards adherence and belief versus wanting to load your lumbar extensors. Does that make some sense? 
It does. No, absolutely. I think you're talk- it's great because you're, you're using the term specific to make sure that it is context specific to that patient and working towards their specific goals. Just for the sake of devil's advocacy, even though, like I say, I get it. I get what you're meaning. But I, if I were to re-ask that question to, to Shirley Sarman, to Diane Lee, to Paul Hodges to some extent, then they might say initially they would utter the same thing. They would say absolutely 100% specific. Now what they mean by that is slightly different in a sense that they would be very specific to um, tummy tucking or to the create the creation of uh, or movement towards what they consider to be an optimal movement um, away from that pathokinesiology. So is that something that is, I mean, I personally would I admit my bias and say, I think that that is still rife. So the idea of people thinking, right, the best exercise is a specific exercise. They don't necessarily couch it like you did in terms of specific in context, specific in function. They are couching it in this notion of we need to be specific as a corrective exercise, which is another part of the language that's used and especially in and around the term even the word functional has been has been you know co-opted in a sense people like Nadia Aguilar doing functional patterns we've got Kelly Starrett who's been mentioned on this podcast with uh, me before where th- this notion where we need to correct aberrant movements they would make the same noises in terms of specificity but they clearly mean it in a different way to you well look, I think again we have let's just go back to the really basic tenants of evidence-based practice if you are going to tell me to correct something if you want a specific exercise to fix the problem which is really rife in therapy isn't it that's the way that I grew up in the 90s and the 2000s and what have you you know learning about the specific exercise for the specific problem in the days before the internet and the days before access to to data and really you know twitter and all these other things where we can just ask some very you know knowledgeable learned learned people um if anyone knows of any information that that drives us in this direction we just need to come back here to say if we are going to advocate a specific course of action do we know that that specific course of action has been proven to give us a better outcome than another course of action so I think the, if we're being data driven and, and evidence based practice is not about finding a single way to help people or treat people. As far as I'm concerned, evidence based practice is actually about understanding everything as a whole. And when we look at exercise and movement, we just do not see in the data this specificity of do this exercise. It's the best exercise and it's going to help the problem more than any other exercise. I know that people love that model of thinking. And before you know, access to lots of information that we have, that's probably easier to pedal. Now we can actually go on and, um, you know, gits like me and other people can go on and and say, well, I'm going to actually find out if this is true. And, you know, so if you want to tell me to do something and you want to tell me it's the best thing, you need to be able to provide a really, really good quality case that involves some kind of um, objective evidence that tells me that I need to do it in this specific way. Otherwise, I'm going to completely ignore you and think about all the other ways that might be the best way for this person in a more general sense. So could it be that I need to do return to play, you know, hops or quad index stuff for um, ACL? So specifically, do I want you to have a certain amount of strength difference, you know, a decrease in that strength between a decrease in the difference between your two, um, your, your, your good knee and your bad knee? Do you need to be able to pass RTP tests to get you back to playing to reduce the risk of re-injury. Do we have data? Yes, I'm on board. That's a specific scenario where I feel we can define it. 
we can uh, measure it and we can actually follow that protocol and it's likely to have important um, an important factor. Equally, post-operatively, you know, we know that strength affects movement uh, post-operatively uh, post when it falls below the required level. Um, but after that, we just don't have this data that suggests that we can find these exercises or these patterns or these muscle activation things. So from my perspective, if you want me to follow your protocol, if you want me to believe what you say, then you have to show me some data that tells me that this is the right course of action. A great example of that was a lower back pain paper, a systematic review that came out 2012, 2013, I can't remember, there's so many papers floating around, yeah. um, that suggests that you need no change in any physical quality for a, a, a positive clinical outcome. Being a data-driven person, I'm gonna say, well, this, that, you know, if, if we're gonna think about this, you know, if we wanna put this into an actual clinical case, and say, well, you know, if doing the exercise is far more important than any change in a biomotor quality that I can measure, then I need to find out what you enjoy, what your belief structure is, you know, what you what is going to make you do it, what's going to make you adhere to it and measure the outcome. Whereas, you know, otherwise you need to give me a really, really good clinical case that if I need to be more specific than that, you need to give me more specific. So I'm going to throw line that I use on my courses, you know, non-specific pain, we probably need a non-specific approach to exercise. But that doesn't mean it's non-specific to the person. It means it's non-specific to the exercise. Absolutely. And and I, I've been confusing people by ranting in that direction relatively recently, or at least in the last 12 months, where I've said that non-specific low back pain is an, an, it's an academic, it's a research term, because it's very specific to the person. If you want to exactly. use tissue-specific, non-specific low back, uh, sorry, non-tissue-specific chronic low back pain, then maybe you, you, start, you start winning, because of course that's what it means, and it's me being yes. fussy over it, but there's nothing non-specific about it to that person. On the other end of a the spectrum then, Ben, is that there's this notion where, and obviously they, they breach your specificity rules here, don't get me wrong, but this idea that because it doesn't matter, because we don't necessarily have good accurate assessment of it and therefore a notion as to what the right exercise would be, then it's just if I can persuade them to go swimming because they used to enjoy swimming a few years ago, then that's all that will matter and therefore just engaging them in general exercise um, and therefore they've gone non-specific in a different way they mean well they've kind of understood the variables but they've become almost nihilistic that just makes them then turn into quite generic uh, vanilla personal trainers of a sort where it's just about persuading someone to engage with something regularly and that's that i personally find that to be too narrow in the other way oh i and i i agree entirely i think that what we have to do always, again, is remain critical of our clinical process. So, look, it, 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 my, my thing about exercise is we, we choose an exercise, we apply a dose, we look for a reaction. So, you know, if you breach those rules, you know, those, those kind of bend rules, if you like, then you're probably not reasoning that well, are you? So, oh, my God, he's gone swimming. Um, and it, oh, it was meant to have an effect because any exercise will work. What kind of rubbish thinking is that? What you need to do is say, I think this is going to be the most probable thing that's going to help this person based on the evidence that we have and also that applicability of the evidence to this N equals one individual in front of me. Especially because it's, it's a patient that probably came in and told you about how much they were struggling picking their young child up off the floor um, and, and you've sent them in the pool. 
and you think yeah. that you're being you you, th- you think that, that that's a, a smart intervention it's it, yeah it gets a bit messy there doesn't it I, I can i run you through kind of what i would do absolutely so i think i've got four major steps that i go that i go through and i think the first step it's got to always be the person it's got to be listening it's got to be understanding their goals what they value their activities their sports you know what do they give a shit about you know picking up their kids putting on their shoes People get pretty upset if they can't do their shoelaces up in the morning because of their back pain. You know, it makes people feel pretty shitty, I think. Um, What's their current state? How sensitive are they? You know, this is going to inform my dosage. This might inform my education. And then I also need to understand a little bit more about their belief structure as well. So we have the goals. We have the current state. We have their belief structure. That would be my first stage. And that basically is kind of your subjective bit. I think what you then have to do is use your clinical reasoning and then think about, does the, my exercise uh, fit into these goals? Is it likely to help someone achieve them? Uh, what's my dosage? Is it likely to cause pain? Is it likely to not cause pain? Is it, you know, likely to have a positive aspect? You know, it, for some people, it might be that, you know, we have a big thing about exercise and pain is okay. But if I believe that my, my patient's belief structure is going to limit them from, if an exercise is causes pain, it's going to limit them from exercising, then pain is not a good thing here. You know, whereas some other people, it might be that they feel they need to have some aspect of of load and soreness, you know. So, again, it has to be based around that psychology and response of the individual. So does my exercise selection achieve the goal? Is the dosage right for that sensitivity level? And how well have I explained the relevance of what I'm doing to that person? And do they believe in what I'm trying to do? I think that has to be really important. At the end of it, I always try to say to people really, really simply, do you think this is something that you're able to achieve quite easily? Do you think it's going to make a difference? Two questions that I want to know, because if they don't believe in it, um, they're not going to do it. And I don't always believe I get the right, you know, that the, they're true answers. You know, <laughs> that's a whole nother factor as well. But <laughs> I would like to know, you yeah. know, and then I think step three is probably the most important, which is reflection. You know, if we look at has this exercise has a positive or a negative effect? Has it given them pain beyond what they feel they can tolerate? Has it created no effect? You know, can we say, has the person got a perception of benefit from this exercise? So when they come back to me, I'm going to say, what did you think of the exercise? How easy did you find you did you find it to do? Do you think it made any difference to your problem? And, you know, and then we have to start to think about um, how those things fit in. So it's the reflection part. So if I just say, right, exercise, back pain go and swim and then I never actually come back and talk to the person about that and see if it's made any difference or what they think about it or actually have they done it then that is a really really poor way of the clinical reasoning for exercise and then finally I think we need to based on that reflection we make an adjustment so progression regression um helping people to look after themselves by... you mean a specific spinal adjustment i assume you mean oh, in case no, in I case they're think... out of alignment just to check no, no. so if i said i've got you know before i've listened to their goals i generally do the specific spinal assessment oh uh, good. Assessment. good i good. just find just get it out of the way early doors jack do you know what yeah. i mean <laughs> absolutely you've got to make sure that's in the bag otherwise they'd be walking around on such a crooked spine it'd be worrying just do it. It? Just, just pop so every level i'm glad uh, i'm glad i'm glad we just stuff. checked that but anyway do go on all the other stuff is just secondary. I'm just doing it for the. I'm just doing it for the internet. Rest I re- is padding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then finally, I think the adjustment is important. So how do we adjust it? Do we adjust it by changing the exercise? Do we change the dosage? Do we, you know, change the planning? Sometimes people 
their, their best intention was to do it every morning, but the kids get up. So actually doing it at lunchtime might be more beneficial. So the person, the exercise, the reflect, reflection, and then the adjustment according to all those other factors. And for me, that's a clinical reasoning process. And this is what I teach rather than, oh, exercise works, do some exercise. Absolutely. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And a, a smart sort of step-by-step plan to do it. And that's the thing is that sometimes people say, oh, it's a, it's a four-point plan or whatever it is. And, and then you notice that things get tethered and narrowed. Whereas with that, it's broad and all-encompassing. And especially you've, you've put engagement, the patient's engagement with the process at the heart of that, which is really important as we've talked about. Um, one of the things, I can't talk about specificity um in this direction without going into some of the things we touched on earlier revisiting them a little bit but i'm sure we can add an extra angle to it which is that it is a trendy flavor at the moment um where uh, we've just sort of sarcastically mocked it a little bit this idea of specificity of manual therapy um and there is a trend though to go down the route of of that being the next level the next frontier is that we're being anally specific over sets reps uh, rep max and the pro- sort of program design type stuff is important in some and less important in others. As again, just to plant my flag, I personally find myself giving out exercises that I describe almost like principles. I want you to explore this movement in this position. I think that would be a good idea. They ask me how, you know, how many should I do, and I say, I want you to start off just doing it for a couple of minutes and just uh, and, and, and generally speaking, I send a fan and put them in positions and principles rather than the specifics of exercise, unless I want to be specific on them, such as giving them some soleus conditioning because they have a fairly specific Achilles tendinopathy. But in general, if uh, in this low back pain case that we were loosely describing, that would be an example in which I gave quite non-specific parameters to. So that's me planting my flag. Do you find, do you have a go-to sort of dosage that you then pivoted adjust on or is that something that you make it more specific than I'm describing that I do well I think it has to come down to actually doing it with someone so you know one of the big things that improves adherence is actually um, doing an exercise with someone um, in, 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 in your in your session um, simply because are you likely to gain an idea of how difficult it is how much effort it's taking and how it feels and so, you know, actually, it's a suck it and see scenario, isn't it? So, um, again, that comes back to the sheet of exercises thing that was uh, big, you know, give people a sheet of exercises of exercises that you can't actually see anymore because it's been photocopied so many times. Um, and, you know, actually do the exercise with the person. Give them an indication of what you want. How does it feel to them? Um, you know, I think these are the big things that give me an indication about dosage. So another thing that I talk quite regularly about is these biomotor qualities we have of strength and endurance and hypertrophy and all these other things. How well do they relate to pain? And, uh, you know, I think just porting over these physical qualities into exercise for pain just is not right. We just don't have the data that these two things mix in any way, shape or form. But I do think if you do have a specific biomotor goal, 
of, you know, affecting a tissue and mechanotransduction or, you know, uh, a, some kind of stress fracture and you want to create some aspect of load to the beneficial load to the tissue. You know, are they relevant for the clinical case? And I think if we can get one message, if I can get one message across, it's that if you have an overarching principle of exercising in a certain way or for a certain biomotor, biomotor quality and you use that along the whole clinical spectrum, then that's not that sensible. What we need to be able to do is evaluate the specificity or the non-specificity of each scenario and say what is in this person's history, what's within their objective testing, all these other factors that lead me to believe that I need to be more specific. And I couple that with the data that we also have. So, you know, the, the research gives me uh, a probability. The, um, the person's subjective history and objective testing gives me the likelihood of that data actually um, being relevant to them and then kind of monitoring the outcome. I think that, yeah, absolutely. I, one, of the, one of the things as well, I think we need to be mindful of the iatrogenic effects of some of the latest lingo. So one of the, one of the or, or some of the inferred things that come from what we're suggesting. So one of my biggest problems with, say, therapeutic ultrasound, beyond the fact that it seemed to not necessarily be doing the things it was purported to do, but this inference that this is going to help to facilitate your healing made out to the patient that the healing of the tissues was specifically relevant to their symptoms. Whether we said it or not, that's what was inferred. Similarly, we get frustrated with a classic subluxation theoried chiropractor or some of our physiotherapy colleagues, of course, and, and, and other therapy colleagues, where they would infer that, oh, I think that this is because you're out of alignment, therefore, we, you know, the patient, whether it gets said or not, the patient then infers that, okay, I need to be put into the right alignment, therefore, to be, sorry, to be, therefore, in, in less pain. We're going to make the same mistake as being like, okay, we've found this to be weak and this to be tight or this to be stiff, infers the same thing. It therefore infers that the weakness is specifically related to the pain. And in certain circumstances, it may well be in terms of, as I've mentioned, soleus conditioning at the, uh, for, for specifics of Achilles, not necessarily the, the one cause, but seems relevant. Similarly, certain patellofemoral pains, if you find eccentric quads being poor, then that might be something specifically relevant. But generally speaking, this notion in which we can infer that you are therefore well, you wouldn't necessarily say it, but you lack strength infers you are therefore weak, and that is what is relevant to your symptoms. I think is a is something we need to be mindful of, and it's certainly what I'm what I'm hearing from how you're describing it. Well, I think you need to be mindful of it, it of it if it's worth being mindful of. So, if you have someone that you feel has you know been down roads where they've been told this and that, and their belief has been influenced, then absolutely, what you say should be. Um, completely at the top of your agenda, you know, whereas maybe again, does it come back to clinical reasoning? So I have someone else, they're a rugby player, they're pretty robust, you know, you can tell that they just want to get on with it and do it and load the tissue, saying, you know, you're, we just need to strengthen this a little bit, no. might not be a problem it's at all. So it, does it come back to, again, we, we, you know, we want to, everything comes back to these binaries where we want to say, this isn't right, this is wrong, this is right etc everything isn't wrong or right it's it, it's relevant to the person so if in lower back pain with someone who's had a 10-year history who's had a long history of biomedical diagnoses and you know uh, investigations that have come to nothing etc 
do I want to give them another label or answer or something that might affect the way that they behave? I probably actually want to mind my language, as I said, but if I have a rugby player or a young sportsman and I don't believe that that actually has very much of an effect, then I might be less mindful, you know. So, again, it has to come down to the way we say things as well. There's a, between, there's a difference between, say, the word, let's take the word strength. It's only a word. If I was to say, you just need to be a little bit stronger, mate, that might be absolutely fine. Whereas if I, I had to say to someone, look, you just are not strong enough. Do you see what I mean? I've used the same word, but I've done it in two different ways. No, I totally agree. Uh, it's about that. It's about making sure that we're aware that it shouldn't be used generically. We shouldn't uh, adopt a new favourite vernacular that we then only we, we use that specifically. Cognitive efficiency, I think, is what I, you know. Maybe that's a nice term for laziness. <laughs> so it's it just comes back to you know I'm tired. It's a Monday night. It's nine o'clock. It's your last patient. I just want to trot something out. You know, and we've all been there and, you know, and, and I think just these are sometimes where practice versus perfect collide, you know? Yeah, no, it makes sense. One of the things I wanted to touch on with you, Ben, before we wrap up is do you separate rehabilitation from performance? And do, do, you, do, you, do you adjust your strategies uh, in any gross, meaningful way if you were to be working with someone or advocating for someone that's not currently got musculoskeletal pain? So, look, absolutely. I think the world of performance exercise is really well researched. Um, you know, we have lots of data that sticking within certain parameters has specific effects. Now, that's my mate Brad Schoenfeld's done a lot of work recently where they've challenged, you know, kind of traditional ways of looking at hypertrophy. And we realize you can do it with lower loads and higher loads and probably shows, again, that kind of specificity element isn't that important. But absolutely, with performance goals, you probably want to be working within performance parameters. So does rehabilitation become performance down the line? And the answer has to be in some circumstances, yes, if that's where the person wants to go. We could even suggest that sometimes we treat chronic pain as chronic pain. And part of the problem of treating chronic pain as chronic pain is it keeps people chronic and that we don't actually progress through the gears. We know we don't change the doses. We're too scared of flaring things up. So sometimes, you know, things need to progress even from, a, a, a you know, an injury or a pain stance. But certainly I think it comes back to that question of do is exercise for pain different to exercise for, for, for performance? And I think the answer has to be yes. And we have to realise that. So does that mean that as someone's pain starts to subside that I can um, change the way that I do things or the way that I operate. Um, absolutely. But let's probably see it as a continuum. You know, we, I don't want to separate them because, you know, exercises for rehab, you could also use for performance and exercises performance you could also use um, for rehab. And you could just say they're exercise. What might change is the dosage and what might change is the aim of the exercise in terms of am I looking for it to be analgesic versus in a performance setting, am I maybe looking for it to achieve a specific performance goal? And if we take sport and we take re return to play, there are definitely these specific performance goals. So does it have to graduate and, uh, and kind of meld and mould from one into the other? So, so absolutely. So, yes, I do separate in terms of mechanism. I separate in terms of the way that I deal with people. But then also we have to say there is a continuum where it does flow into this world of um, world of performance as well. So, so that's probably a bit of a rubbish answer, actually. Um, but yeah, no, do, I it makes, yes. it, do I separate them? No, <laughs> yeah, it makes sense though. I, I, do you? Do you? Um, I mean, 
again, a, se- a sensible and nuanced answer, and, and I want that from you. But also, there is there is a, a call that can be made when people aren't necessarily symptomatic, and there's people that are just looking for the right thing for them to do to further their fitness, to potentially lose some weight, for them to, you know, there's, there's almost just this general sort of what exercise should I be doing and fads and fashions sort of creep in and out. Do you find yourself sort of favouring a high-intensity interval training, CrossFit, for example, um, these, this sort of caveman approach, open gyms in which you've got free weights for all, um, do you find yourself favouring that because it, you know, based on your principle of it increases the variation over the more traditional sort of, okay, I'll do 15 minutes on a treadmill, 15 minutes on a cross trainer, 15 minutes on a rowing machine, and I'll maybe finish in the, in the jacuzzi and pretend to, to sort of swim. Um, Love that jacuzzi bit. Jack. Well, uh, that's the best bit as well. That's why I've just mentioned it. I, I sort of slowed my speech down. I'll be here jacuzzi after. <laughs> absolutely yeah to the bath boys um what what's your sort of thoughts on that because it does it does seem to matter to people and the superiority complex I, I don't imagine you'll buy into but if you were to have if someone was to hypothetical then someone was to say i can commit to three hours of exercise a week and you would you go for and in this, let's just make this weird hypothetical in which they then said, I'm not accepting three three options there. I'm going to do three of something similar. I'm going to go to one gym or one facility. Therefore, you can't say swim one day, run the next, and then go to train with free weights the other. If I'm being awkward and I narrowed you, where, where would you, where would you find yourself sending them if they would only well, go to one? There point? has to be two answers to this question. It has to be a professional bias versus a personal bias. So my professional head would say, "What are you most likely to do? What do you enjoy most with that time? Where are you most likely to be able to get to?" Because if I said, "Right, I love caveman training, and I want you to caveman train three hours a week," and they said, "I've never done it. I don't like it. I don't know where the hell I should do it." Um, what, what point is that? So you would have to say, what do you do? What do you enjoy doing? What's your access? You know, because again, the idea of activity and exercise for general health is probably do it is better than not doing it. And a lot of people do things like this self-sabotage that they choose to join a gym 20 miles down the road because they really love the gym. It's the best gym in the area. But what happens? They don't ever go because it's the inertia to get them going and down there is far too great Mm. on a Tuesday night after work. So my professional head would say, let's, what is most likely to happen? You know, that, that would be where I'd be. But if you were to ask me my personal, well, this is the thing for the sake of this unicorn case study, this is someone that is putting in your hands and he's going to listen to what you suggest. Is it a fluffy unicorn? Absolutely, always. Ah, oh, excellent. You know, I, I apart just from the, apart from the horn, that, that it's like really <laughs> fluffy. Apart from the horn, it's like savage. <laughs> well, thanks for giving me the horn, Jack. That that was cool. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yes, if I have a per- now, my personal bias, I love at combat fighting sports, and that's my thing. But again, if you told most people to do that, they probably wouldn't go and get punched in the face. But I, yeah, again, I love task-based training, moving things, pushing things, lifting things. Um, again, that maybe aren't traditional in terms of weightlifting or powerlifting or Olympic lifting. You know, I like the idea of a task where we don't have too many instructions, where we have to move a load, but you can move it in different ways, where we have lots of 
variation going on in the way that you move it. Because I think it probably has the biggest translational effect to lots of other environments. I think if we think about low tolerance, low tolerance is probably reasonably specific. You know, we know that because hopping up and down on a tendon is probably different to doing heavy, slow resistance. So that shows that actually the load to that tendon is specific in terms of response. So if we think about load tolerance, can we make load variable? Can we make load in different ways? You know, and uh, and doing task based training. And, and I've got a friend down the road who actually uh, owns a gym just like this from me. Not that I go that often, um, but, you know, flipping things and moving things and uh, and, and, and things like that, for me, forms kind of the holy grail of, you know, that aspect of real world strength and fitness versus maybe gym fitness. So I do think that that kind of stuff is really cool. That would be my personal bias. Um, but again, is that likely to get done by many people? Does it provide lots of barriers? Yes. And what I see so much within the world of therapy is people find it very hard to differentiate between their personal exercise bias and their what should be their professional clinical reasoning biases. Yeah, no, that's, that sounds totally, totally reasonable balance on that question because it's, it is something that people have got to fight that urge to, to um, it, it works for me and therefore, you know, you, you just over extrapolate it to everyone that comes through, even though they're fortunately nothing like you. Um, I think that's a, that's a smart move. Now, what I want to wrap up with, Ben, is any. You know, just want you to direct. I mean, the the amount of the, you're incredibly generous with your time, and the amount that you share, and that in your website, even as a resource, is phenomenal, as well as your social media channels. So, if you can tell people what you've shared and what you do, and how to find it, if you don't mind. Yeah. So, really, as I said at the beginning, my company is Core Kinetic. Www. Hyphen k i n e t i c dot com, um, and yeah. Uh, so my Twitter handle is Core Kinetic as well. You can find me at Facebook, um, Ben Cormack, and uh, yeah. So look, I mean, you know, I I, I enjoy sharing. I enjoy um, interacting with people most of the time, um, and I also think, you know, I wouldn't ever tell people that I've got a massive research background, and you know, there's much much smarter people than me. But when it actually comes to the evidence base and the information that we do have and getting that across to people, I feel that's kind of a niche market that I enjoy and, and that I'm I'm reasonably OK at. So, you know, that's kind of my thing. It's knowledge translation. So we have all these wonderful people who create lots of knowledge. Uh, we have people that disseminate. We have teachers. And without all these different aspects, we probably each wouldn't be individually as successful. Yeah, no, that, that makes that makes sense. And thank you for all your time in doing and exploring those things and sharing it as, as widely as you do. It's it's fantastic work. And I hope that people will then find themselves at your courses soon. And um, you, I mean, you, you teach all over the world. So our international listeners, please do keep an eye. And I'm sure if they were interested in bringing you to their shores, then you'd be open to that, too. Oh, I mean, you know, I mean, that's somewhere where I've been internationally. It's somewhere where I've really um, kind of it's been it's been uh, great. Ne- even early part of next year, I'm very fortunate to go to Phoenix, Moscow, Stockholm, and Tel Aviv in the space of about three weeks. So it's um, so it's it's been you know it's been I'm really glad that people f- feel that what I have to say is relevant and 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 informative to them, especially as I maybe I'm not your traditional kind of research based. Um, you know, teacher that maybe is quite predominant at the moment. So look, you know, I just count my blessings and uh, 
<laughs> you know, hopefully I don't end up on the dole queue too soon. And to make hay while the sun shines, so I'm glad oh, it's popular, mate. So you just they, keep doing it. Keep travelling. before they find me out, I'd better make some hay, <laughs> right? Absolutely, yeah, for, for sure. Well, I've scratched beneath the surface as best I can, mate, and I certainly haven't caught you out, so uh, there's, there needs to be someone more qualified than I am. One last thing I wanted to touch on. We, we know each other through technology and the integration of technology to improve compliance with exercise and the integration of technology for finding out information and disseminating it to patients is something that is the next frontier really I feel we need to make sure we use new media for good uh, for translation too do you have any sort of thoughts on on that because you seem to have been you know one of the trailblazers in that direction for blogs podcasts uh, pieces to camera um, videos and, and, and dissemination so do you, do you feel that that's something that needs to be just embraced in its in its fullest or do you have have you got any words of caution in that direction well look i'm down to every single person that reads something watches something to remain to some degree critical of that so you know we have more information so people's filters are better but i do think they're trying to criticizing this sometimes we find you know, the, the powers that be feel that people can't be trusted to be able to do that so that we, they have to provide, you know, like an academic filter here. So, look, I think there is always a caution that just because you hear it or you read it, whether that's in a research article, uh, peer reviewed or whether it's in a blog or whether it's in a webinar, that you have to be able to, to process that information and, and, and use it in a, a diligent and, and professional way. Um, but certainly, you know, how much how much more knowledge do you have now jack compared to the maybe you know obviously in a natural course of action you do anyway but how much exposure do you have um to information now that you didn't have before research articles and all these things when i went to university we didn't even have we had an internet room you know we had to go and use a computer in a room for the internet and even then it was you know it took about five hours to download anything so knowledge translation now is a, is a key to change. Um, but the problem is that I'm not always sure people want change, um, you know, because it changes the, the natural hegemony of, of what we have going on around us. Um, so, look, I, I, I think it's, it's fantastic. There has to be caution, but we have to put that at the base of the individual rather than at keeping these traditional ivory towers and other factors going you know we, the world's changing and we always have to embrace that if you don't move with it and try and influence it in a positive way you're just going to get left behind absolutely my position on this stuff as as many of the listeners will already know is that just try to articulate yourself as clearly and as authentically as you can put your work out there if you're wanting to share it and see what the market says about it and and this man has done just that and he's one of the inspirations for all that we do and, and keeps our standards high by us trying to rise to his bar. So thank you so much for your time, Ben. Absolute pleasure to chat to you. Uh, we could go on and on because this stuff uh, is just exactly what we enjoy talking about. I know both of us could, could talk about it for hours, but thank you so much for your insights and, and for all Cheers. that you do. Cheers, buddy. I've appreciated Yeah, my, uh, my Facebook tag is now Professional Loudmouth. Uh, I put that on there the other day because I think it sums me up quite well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and you do that and you think in public and you're willing to share stuff that's sort of... I think sometimes, I mean, a lot of people willing to share, but not a lot of people willing to put it out there when it's sort of in in development. I think that's one of the things I really admire and, and something I've really tried to step up to is that 
you know, it's all well and good putting something together that you've thought on and developed over a period of time that's well constructed. But to do that and think in public and to develop it over time and to generally, uh, genuinely and humbly sort of construct your thoughts around other people's views and, and, and share stuff that's in the making, I think that that takes an extra level of bravery and you do that well. So I want you to keep doing that. And anything, anytime we can catch up and put you back on the airwaves, then we will do. But uh, Ben, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, buddy. And there we have it, session 48. Ah, amazing to, to get four years under our belts. I'm, I'm kind of getting bored. I get bored of little milestones like that, but it, gets, it makes me warm inside. I probably shouldn't talk about them, just feel them. But anyway, there you go, four years. Another Christmas soon upon us. We have some special Christmas present, some material coming, uh, including some of the stuff that we did at the Big R's, which we're going to bring you before Christmas time. So keep an eye out for that. If you're into our bonus content, especially patrons, they'll probably get it at least a week sooner. But probably most of it, we're just going to curate it as best we can and get that out there as soon as possible. So keep an eye out on their social media streams, usual ones. And at Core Kinetic is Ben's Twitter handle, available on Facebook, Ben Cormack, as well as his website, core-kinetic.com. Uh, which is a brilliant resource, as I keep going on about throughout the podcast. Um, if you are interested in supporting what we do, and a few people have got in touch saying, that, like, what if, sort of how can my department support you, how can we get extra content for us, and, and things like that, then, yeah, just get in touch, drop us an email, inquiries at choosehealth.co.uk, or catch us on social media, at TPM Podcast on Twitter, I think it's at TPM Podcast on Instagram, uh, The Physio Matters Podcast on Facebook, and uh, which is where you'll find a lot of our special content. Um, and but yeah, any any time if you reach out to us, we we tend to respond. And if there's any way that you want to support us or any way that you feel you benefit from extra content of ours, we also have of course mentoring frameworks through Choose Health that are very popular. So if you feel that like that's something that you benefit from, is a chat with me or some of the team or to run a workshop and your service training session and that's the way that you might get something back for any support that you want to give for us uh, through patreon or paypal then do let us know there's a donate button on the website on the main physio matters page of the choosehealth.co.uk website so lots of different ways to to get in touch and get involved thanks to today's sponsor exerciseprescriber.com check them out two month free trial on their website as well as of course if you reach out to us if you have a a larger department or service and you want to get involved or find out more from them then get in touch via us or contact them directly and tell them where you found them um, but thanks a lot for listening really appreciate it have a lovely Christmas if you don't hear anything more from me and from us until next year and uh, yeah we'll, we'll keep in touch with you on social media we're going to be particularly noisy through the 12 days of Christmas Jack March has probably got something special lined up for us as per usual where he reflects on the year that's come before it but thank you for tuning in hope you've enjoyed this episode and thanks once again for all that you all do to push the profession forward many people most people that listen to this are doing so in their spare time to further themselves and further their practice for the betterment of patients and i love you all for it so thank you and happy christmas you've been listening to the physio matters podcast discussing physio matters because physio matters